Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. My name is Dean Jones, the Well-Seasoned Librarian. We are in Season 2, Episode 12. I want to tell you about my conversation with Letitia Ann Clark. Um, she is a wonderful cookbook writer and artist, and I really had a wonderful time talking with her. I think you're going to enjoy the conversation, too. Um, I often feel very comfortable talking to some other authors that I that I speak with on the podcast, and Letitia is no exception. Uh, she's a very natural conversationalist, and it felt like I was talking to an old friend. I want to encourage you very much to read her cookbooks. Um, they're wonderful works of art, literally um, very carefully crafted and written with um, gorgeous recipes in them that make you want to just rush out and buy wonderful seafood and pro- produce and pasta to cook yourself. And, uh, I, f- I think you'll find them very inspirational. And uh, I think it's the perfect th- thing uh, if you live in an area where it gets cold in the winter to kind of curl up with one of her cookbooks on a cold day with a nice cup of hot coffee or wine and read them and it'll make you dream of summertime and uh, beautiful Mediterranean weather. Letitia Ann Clark is originally from Devon, England, and she trained at the Leith School Food and Wine after agreeing a Master's of English Literature. After she graduated, she worked in London restaurants, as well as cooking for events, weddings, and market stalls and pop-ups. She had ones called Buns and Puns, I believe. And her illustration works have been featured in PPC Code, The Evening Standard, and Waitrose. And her recipes and writing have been featured in The Guardian, L.A., Condé Nast, Traveling, Waitrose, Olive, The Times, The Financial Times, The Telegraph, The Sunday Times, Sunday Brunch, The New York Times, and more. Very prolific. In 2017, Letitia moved to Sardinia and began writing, drawing, and cooking full-time, as well as teaching English. Her first book is called Bitter Honey. Recipes and Stories from the Island of Sardinia, and that was published in April of 2020. This year, her second book, La Vida e Dolce, A Celebration of Sweet Things, Inspired by Italy, was published in June 2021. Both of them are available on Amazon, and we have links on the bio, so check that out, and definitely check the books out. Um, Amazon has some very spectacular photographs and uh, shows some image pages, to give you an idea of what um, is presented in the books, and I think you'll find them very engaging. Check out her website as well. Um, at the very least, look at her um, beautiful artwork and illustrations. I think you'll be enchanted as I have been. So, without further ado, I want to take you to the conversation. Uh, again, I really enjoyed talking with Leticia um, about her work, and it was a very fun conversation. And on we go. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. This is Dean Jones, and I'm here today with Letitia Ann Clark. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. Now, I just want to comment first off, um, this is, I don't think this is in the list of questions. It's not really a question, but God, I love your artwork so much. <laughs> I really, I, I just really am very um, enamored of your work. I think that you're just a great artist. One of your... Um, Prince for Sale is of a fish, and I must have it someday. I really love it. I love <laughs> I love your work very Thank much. You. Thank you. Is it the, maybe it's the anchovy one? Is it just a yeah. single anchovy? Yeah. 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 It's, it's perfection. I love it very much. <laughs> no, I have a I have a long-standing love of anchovies, so I'm always 
painting them, cooking them, eating them, doing anything I can with them. I actually hatched a little children's book idea a few years ago that was all about an anchovy that had lost his way from his tin and was trying to find his way home. <laughs> so I love that. Goes, <laughs> the obsession you have to goes do that. <laughs> I will help you market that book if you ever make it. <laughs> yeah, if we ever find a publisher, you can help me because Al Alberto the Anchovy, as he was called, yeah, he's definitely been put on the back burner. I'm not sure there's, there's a place for him in the world yet, but maybe we can find one. I know people that have connections at Pixar. I actually work next oh, to wow. Pixar, so maybe we can get you. We have little uh, action figures and a film in the world. Oh, wow. Can you imagine if Alberto the Anchovy made it to the big screen? I mean, I think I, I could die. I could die happy. He'll have his own ride at Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is no there is no fish. I mean, is there a fish hero character in anything? I feel like fish have little, been underexplored. Little well, Nemo. Nemo. Yeah, Nemo's Nemo. about it, yeah. Yeah. That's really good. That's a good one. I like that one. Um, so <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I've been enjoying talking to you so much. I forgot why. I, oh, that's right. We're having a conversation <laughs> about your books. That's right. Okay. Um, so you work as a chef and you've worked as a chef with food. Um, what kind of work, where, where did you get your instruction uh, to work with food and be a chef? Because I know you started out with, uh, was it buns and puns? Buns and buns, yeah. yeah. So I, um, I kind of, I mean, food has always been a big part of my life. I, I have that sort of classic grandmother story. I think almost every chef or anyone that likes to cook generally inherits that from a, a grandmother somewhere oh, yeah. along the line. Um, and I had a, a very brilliant um, cook, a grandmother. My grandmother was a brilliant cook, and she kind of inspired in, in me a love for food and especially kind of um she was an incredibly innovative cook she used to sort of just make things up and she was quite slapdash she was quite um kind of scruffy and frantic and um I sort of loved that imperfection about it she wasn't very precise and she didn't really follow recipes um and she, you know there were plenty of disasters but there were also a, a lot of successes and it sort of made it the successes more poignant obviously because there were the disasters as well um, and she was just a very, a very kind of eccentric and fascinating person. And I loved watching her cook and I loved eating with her. And she was, she was also very greedy, which I think is a really important thing. You know, in, I mean, to cook food and be interested in food, you really have to like eating food. And she, I've never met anyone that was so greedy. And she was a kind of bizarre mixture of a real stickler for table manners and for sort of politeness and etiquette but then at the same time she, you know she would encourage you to lift up your bowl and and lick the remains or like suck on your bones you know if you didn't suck your bones dry she was furious because she thought it was a waste and it, it was such a sort of funny contradiction between how kind of sort of neat and proper and prim she was about table table manners but at the same time if you didn't drink the rest of your cereal milk from the bowl then she would be horrified so she was a, yeah really kind of amazing character to have and a real inspiration and then um I studied English literature at uni and I sort of wasted all my time well not wasted perhaps but I, I I procrastinated um by cooking because I sort of was supposed to be reading and studying obviously and instead I just ended up cooking and reading cookbooks um so then I thought when I graduated perhaps I could do something with it properly so I worked in a pub for a bit and um kind of just got some rough and ready instructions sort of Anthony Bourdain style kind of learning on the job with a very angry chef 
who taught me quite a lot, um, but threw a lot of plates and pans in the process. And then I thought, well, actually, maybe I should do this properly. Um, so I signed up to cookery school in London and trained at Leith's, which is a very good cookery school in London, sort of French, mostly kind of classic French um, influence. And I did the diploma course there. And then I went to work in lots of restaurants in London before I finally ended up leaving and moving to Sardinia. So yeah, that was kind of my chefing career. Um, so tell me about your work as an illustrator as well. We mentioned your artwork earlier, um, talking about your, your work, but what have you done as an artist? Where did you kind of like pick up the knack to draw? Did you always draw since you were a kid or did you pick it up later? Um, well, I always loved, I loved drawing and I, I sort of, it was always a bit of a toss up between whether to study English or art at, at university. And I would have loved to go to art college, but sadly, you know, we only have one life and I was sort of ended up thinking that art would be harder to turn into some kind of job which is obviously ridiculous because you know English is just as hard to turn into some kind right, of job yeah. <laughs> so um I thought okay well I don't want to be a sort of impoverished artist struggling for the rest of my life so I'll, I'll do English and then maybe I can do something else with it um so I, I studied English but then I I always tried to keep up the drawing on the side um, and when I was working in kitchens the, the illustrations became a sort of light relief for the incredibly stressful hours and and the sort of lifestyle and 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 just the sort of sense of humor I think that you you get when you work in kitchens because it's I guess it's a bit like being in the war or something like it's yeah. such a stressful environment that you become incredibly silly and like your sense of humor it sort of just sort of regresses and you find you know like anything you just constantly laughing at carrots that are vaguely phallic or like anything you know that's just like anything that can be diverting and a little bit kind of distracting and so I think I found a lot of inspiration in just silly phrases or names of vegetables or things that I liked and I would write them down and squirrel them away and then I would turn them into an illustration when I finally had a day off or or whatever it was um, and I've tried to sort of keep that up and I've moved a bit more into it initially it was all kind of nonsense and puns and things because I loved nonsense and and word games and and all that kind of stuff I'm a kind of collector of words um so I it was always originally based around that and then I've moved into kind of just paintings sort of straightforward paintings of, of beautiful vegetables or fruit or uh, fish or things that I love and things that kind of catch my eye with the colors and and that's one of the thing one of the things about living in Italy I think is the colors of things are so different um and so sort of specific to you know hot climate like the the amazing purples of the, of the aubergines and the, the, the those sort of incredible colors in an artichoke and all that kind of stuff and it's it's sort of begging to be turned into into painting so that's definitely become a bit more of an influence as well but yeah, I still, I mean, I never do as many or as much as I want to. And I'm still always thinking, you know, oh, I haven't done any drawing for ages. I must sit down and do some drawing. But yeah, sadly, there's only so much time in every day. But yeah, it's still something I hope I'll always keep up. Well, I mean, Bitter Honey and La Vida El Dolce, both of them have such a beautiful look to them. I mean, they're gorgeously, they're gorgeously done. And the, the food photography is exceptional. Did you have a kind of hand in directing that or did they just kind of take over and do the whole thing? I always want to know because I'm very interested in publishing behind the scenes. That's why I ask. 
Oh God, you've opened up a can of worms here because I could I could talk about this for about 20 hours, literally. I mean, there's <laughs> so much to say because it's also, you know, it's a, learn, it's a learning process for me. And, and obviously, you know, I'm learning as I go along and, and figuring out what I really want to do with it and how much freedom I can have as an author. And, and, and luckily with my publishing company, I, I have been given a lot of freedom. So I did do quite a lot of sort of I wouldn't say directing because there is obviously a designer that we work with but you know they are it's a very much a, a process sort of combined process and I'll say to her I want these three pictures to sit on the same page because the colors complement each other and I think the thing is at the end of the day you know it's it is my it's my experience that we're translating into a book and I think you know she the designer or whoever it is is probably in a different country in a in a you know in a in an office somewhere and the, you know this book has to portray a place and the things that are very specific to that place and the colors and the scenes and the architecture and the vegetables and the produce and the food and everything and so I think you know it's always going to be a, there's always going to be a big onus on the author to say like these photos need to go together because they make sense you know this this town produces this vegetable which produces this dish so let's have those three pictures that tell this story so I think you know I did have a big part in saying what I wanted to go with what and that was really nice because I, I was very kind of I, I wanted to be involved and luckily I was allowed to be involved I'm sure the poor designer was sitting there going god I'm so fed up hearing from this author every day um but luckily I was allowed to do that so yeah I think I, I I like to have a big part in all parts of it I chose the photographer of this for the second one the first one I was sort of given a choice of three and I and I chose one which I really liked this this one I just chose out my completely myself I approached the publisher with this this photographer and said I'd, I'd like to use her um so yeah yeah I think you know depending on your publishing company depending on your editor you can get lucky and have a big say in the, in the whole process and I think the more books I do the more I know that I sort of want to narrow down the team to the, the very kind of you know just people I maybe I know that and may do more and more myself essentially I mean my ideal cookbook would be almost entirely made by me <laughs> like I would love to have complete control I think anyone that's a sort yeah. of like an artist is probably a little bit of a control freak as well so you yeah. know like obviously in a dream world you have complete control um but yeah I mean it is also nice I wouldn't say there's anything negative about working with other people because you know obviously it's also nice to have other people's input and ideas and, and creative things so yeah well I think what I like the most about it is um there was a sense of like when you look at the photos in them you really want to eat that you want to eat the food because it's so beautifully prepared and it looks like it's um, very lovingly prepared too so i think i mean you really did a great job with it because i've seen a lot of food photography over the years i feel it's definitely improving because you look at older cookbooks and it's kind of just plopped there but uh <laughs> but now it's like there seems to be like you could tell some time was taken and there mm. was a sense of like what is this going to look like at the end and it really some of it's breathtaking i mean my god uh the cookies that look like little peaches that are filled with ricotta my god yeah. that's just gorgeous i mean i can't imagine how long that took to, to stage but uh that was beautiful it was actually yeah they were like that was quite a nice kind of relaxed process it wasn't that um as stressful as it looks but i've seen 
like a lot of people have been coming out with lots of different looking ones but actually I think that's a good thing like I, I always think you know like but my books are kind of intended as a guide as like a you know a sounding board but I, I I'd, I'd love it if you change things I want I want you to make things bigger or smaller or more full of cream or less full of cream or you know gluten-free if that's if that's what you are or whatever else and I think you know like whenever people blog or post or share something that they've made of mine which they've changed I'm always like thrilled and sometimes I steal their idea you know like yesterday somebody blogged about the cake that I had that, that I, that's in there that's this kind of rosemary lemon olive oil and yogurt cake and they used thyme instead of rosemary and I thought that was really lovely and I you know I was like writing it down like oh I, I should do that so yeah I do really like the sort of feedback side of stuff but yes food photography it's a real art and it's um you know I do think I sort of think there's a balance between styling over styling and just having things looking nice I mean obviously you don't want a plate of food that just looks like it's been plopped there because yeah. <laughs> which I've seen I've seen a lot of that unfortunately <laughs> um, because there's sort of there has to be some kind of skill I think and some kind of presentation but I also think things can be a bit too stylized sometimes where it looks like it's so pretty you wouldn't want to eat it you know like, like yeah, those homes right. like those homes that are like so immaculate you wouldn't actually want to live in them they're sort of like so you couldn't imagine yourself sitting on that sofa or you know reading something on that on that coffee table like I don't think food should look so perfect that it's not really food anymore it's, it's sort of artwork kind of thing but I think there's a definitely there's a fine line and I think um, hopefully I'd sort of try and, and find that with my books, definitely. Yeah, I want it to look delicious and, and sort of beautifully presented, but also like natural and eatable kind of thing. I really got that from your work because it really did look real. I mean, I've seen a lot of stage stuff and you're like boring, like the Sunset Magazine kind of stuff where it always kind of looks like kind of fake and your stuff looked really real like people really actually were probably there there was a, probably a dinner party it yeah. really probably was going to be eaten it must be yeah. frustrating though too at the same time because I, I imagine because of the work involved I can't imagine what it's like to be you and like somebody's just leafing through it and you're like what are you just leafing through this for I spent an entire day on that shot take some time <laughs> Yeah, I think there's like, I mean, I do sometimes just sit back and think like, why do I write books again? This is like, <laughs> yeah, it's like so much work and so much time and so much energy and effort and and love and sweat and tears. And then, you know, someone flicks through it in a bookshop for five seconds. They're like, mm, okay. And you're like, what? This is like two years of my life or like three years of my life. And someone has, has had it and, and done it in like 10 seconds of just flicking through it is it's kind of crazy when you think about it but I don't know you get like I mean I was having this conversation with my brother yesterday actually because he's a writer as well he's just doing his first book um and I was just like why why do we write again and he was like uh, <laughs> and he was like to get closer to the truth and I was like yeah maybe that's it it's like and he was like you know there are moments there are tiny 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 moments sometimes where you touch somebody's life like in the smallest way, like somebody thinks, oh, I love that book, or I really like that phrase, or that recipe sounds delicious. And like, that makes it worthwhile. And when people send me an email or a message, and they're like, I love your book. And I mean, it really does, that does make it worthwhile. So yeah, it's a happy ending. 
I think it's really, I mean, people who make cookbooks don't really know, but like for most of us that are harried, you know, I get home after the end of the day, I got to make some crappy chicken nuggets for my kids. And, you know, I'm just <laughs> relaxing, you know, with a glass of wine after it all just kind of decompressing. And you look through a beautiful cookbook like yours and you kind of like, you sigh, you smile, you leaf through it, you read it. And you're like, one day, <laughs> one day, <laughs> there's hope. There's hope in the world. You give yeah. us hope for a better life. <laughs> yeah. You can move to the Mediterranean. You can do it. It's all good. Yeah. I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to, I'm aware that like, there's again, it's a sort of fine line between like peddling a lifestyle, which is false because I don't, you know, I, do, I don't want to be there saying like, everything is perfect in my lovely Sardinian life where I cook a brilliant, beautiful meal every single day. And I'm never tired. And I never just sit back and eat crisps and drink a beer because I do, you know, like there, there are times when I really don't want to cook. And when I really do just eat a whole packet of crisps and drink a couple of beers and fall asleep. And, and you know, that's, that's my evening. Um, so yeah, I hope that like there is a kind of reality as, as well as a romance. And that is kind of what, um, you know, my favorite cookbooks embrace and portray you know I do think there should be some romance there should be some some beauty and some and some kind of like some aspiration not necessarily like but it should also be it shouldn't be too remote it should be real and honest and and also kind of friendly you know you shouldn't want to feel like this person is miles away from from your life like it should be like I could maybe cook that and I could maybe live like that um yeah I think Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You are originally from uh, Devonshire, right? Am I correct? Yeah, the Am Shire. Yeah. Um, <laughs> with the hobbits running around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you see, like even the hobbit, you know, the hobbits in Lord of the Rings—they basically have a West Country accent. It's very like yeah. it's it's very much true to my region. So yeah, I mean, they. I think it's kind of based around it. Um, but yeah, I I grew up in in Devonshire, Devonshire um and um yes what can I say about it well I can say lots of things about that but did you have a particular question about yeah so um how did you come to live in uh, Sardinia like I mean it's it's a um it's not that far I guess all things considered in America it wouldn't be very far away probably as far as Los Angeles I guess but how did you come to uh to live in Sardinia so I um I was working in in London and I'd sort of been in London for seven years and it's as I guess the sort of case with a lot of places a lot of countries or whatever you know you go to the capital to find work because that's where most of the work is obviously um, and then you either decide you're going to stay there forever because that's where your work is based or then you try and find ways to leave um, and I think I never I was never a city person like I'm very much sort of country bumpkin um, you know I'm at my happiest when I'm wandering around going for a walk with dog or foraging or picking flowers or just sort of faffing around in the countryside I really do love that 
I mean, as twee as it sounds, <laughs> that's how I've grown up and that's what I really love. Um, so I was kind of, you know, I was coming to the end of my London time and I knew I wanted to get out, but I was kept sort of thinking, how would I do it? Um, and then I was working in a restaurant and it was sort of the last restaurant that I thought, you know, that I could carry on doing this because I was just really tired of chefing, full-time chefing life and I wanted to do something else. And then I met um, this Sardinian guy called Luca who became a really close friend and then my boyfriend and he said to me you know I said to him I'm I'm done with London like I, I want to go somewhere else I want to go somewhere smaller I want to go somewhere quieter I want to go somewhere closer to nature um and I want to build something of my own or do something of my own and he said well you know Devon for me is a bit kind of random <laughs> so why don't why don't we try um Sardinia because I've got family there I've got connect you know connections contacts there's lots of opportunity you'd love the food I know you already love Italian food and Italian cooking and and I think you would love it there so we we decided to move there and it was very I mean it was very impulsive my dad was obviously furious and was like what do you mean you're moving Sardinia you can't just make a huge decision like this blah, blah, blah. <laughs> typical dad <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but he'd met Luca and they got on like a house on fire you know they were like taking the piss out of each other and having fun and and you know I think he thought well why not it's an adventure and um and Luca was really keen and and I thought why not you know I'd always wanted to live in a different place I'd always wanted to learn another language it seemed like the perfect opportunity to do it so we did that four years ago and um then we we broke up about two years ago but we're still friends and he's he's opened his own little hotel so he's kind of following his dream and cooking at his hotel and I go over there sometimes especially if he has kind of guests who've read the book or something and and we'll go over and I'll have supper with them and he'll cook for us and we'll talk about the book and things so it's it's really nice um and I'm kind of working towards hopefully opening something small of my own one day when tourism starts up again and I can maybe run something small so yeah, we're both sort of following up the, the same path, but in our own separate way, but it's nice. And I hope that we'll always be friends because we had that sort of shared experience of moving back together. Now you wrote Bitter Honey about Sardinian food. What would you uh, say exemplifies uh, Sardinian food for people that are not familiar with it? So it's, it is quite hard to um, sort of define specifically, obviously Sardinian, is a part of Italy. So Sardinian food is in many ways Italian food, you know, the same kind of ingredients are very prevalent, you know, the sort of main vegetables, kind of zucchini, um, aubergines, tomatoes, peppers, those kind of classic vegetables of the Mediterranean, and obviously olive oil, the main sort of cooking oil and fat and the main seasoner, you know, you season almost everything with good olive oil as well, you know, but cheeses like ricotta, mozzarella, um, and parmesan is still used but um, I think and obviously wine is used quite a lot in cooking as it is in, in all of Italy and pasta is eaten almost daily as it is in the rest of Italy but I think what really defines Sardinia is that because it is quite isolated and it is quite cut off from the mainland it has sort of preserved these very specific ingredients and these very specific traditions and some very specific dishes which which really make it sort of stand apart so it has a couple of pasta dishes which are very 
specific to Sardinia, well, pasta shapes. So fregola, which is a bit like couscous, which is probably a, a Northern African inheritance. Um, and then uh, maloredas, which are sort of small little nuggets, which um, come from kind of region near me. And then coolajonis, which are kind of ravioli filled with potato and mint and uh, pecorino. Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Yeah, the recipes in, in, in Bitter Honey, they're like really delicious, very kind of homely, simple, but then they've got the mint that kind of lifts them up. Um, really interesting and very cheesy. So you get like strings of cheese when you bite into them. It's really good. Um, so yeah, pe Pecorino is, is a massive, massive product here. And I think Sardinia produces something like 80% of the Pecorino sold in, in the world or something. I mean, there is a massive sheep rearing tradition and a lot of pecorino is made here um and it sort of is used more frequently than parmesan i would say in kind of everyday cooking because it's a sort of traditional sardine product um and then in the region where i live there's another very specific sardinian ingredient which is bataga oh yes um, yeah which are the dry is the dried um eggs of gray mullet um, which is used quite a lot in pasta dishes or served in, specifically with, with celery in a salad, which is really delicious. The recipe is in bitter honey for that as well. Um, so yeah, there's just a sort of handful, well not a handful, quite a, you know, quite a few, few ingredients which, which are really very specific to Sardinia. And, and I mean, you know, I think if, if people think about Sardinia, they think about Bataga, um, pecorino and a lot of different sheep's cheeses generally. The fregola, maloredas, collagenis, probably vernaccia, which is a, a wine, um, which is a little like sherry. It has a slightly kind of like oaky flavor. Um, and that's, I've put a recipe using vernaccia. That's really good with seafood, especially. It works really well with seafood. Um, and then probably I'm trying to think of any saffron saffron is also a very prevalent ingredient that's not used as much in mainland Italy so yeah there's a, it sort of does have this strong strain of, of quite specific ingredients and, and dishes but I mean I have written several lists and I should probably send you a proper list rather than just right. firing them off the top of my head but I can I send like you <laughs> I can send you a list of every every very specific Sardinian ingredient if you like, and you can add that as an addendum. Okay, I like that. I think that'd be kind of fun. Now, what do you recommend to somebody who might want to visit Sardinia? Do you have any recommendations on how they should go about it? Other than not being the uh, typical uh, ugly tourist. <laughs> <laughs> What's an ugly tourist? Actually, ugly American. I, I don't know about other countries, but we okay. have the typical you know, shorts, zinc on their nose, sunglasses, <laughs> Hawaiian shirt, yelling and not listening. Yeah, and... I never see that here. I don't know, maybe Americans, do you know what someone told me? I worked with an American, because um, I teach English in the school here, um, and I worked with an American and she said that on lots of maps in America, Sardinia isn't, isn't even marked on the map. So I feel like maybe that's it's sort of been missed off the, the American radar sometimes. I don't know. Maybe that's a good thing, I don't know. <laughs> You don't have any McDonald's, right? <laughs> there is a McDonald's. There is there is McDonald's. Okay, McDonald's I'm surprised. has made it, but Starbucks hasn't. There are no Starbucks. Okay. Um, but You're yeah, probably lucky. Is, 
um yeah no i never see american tourists which is is sort of a shame in a way because i i think they would like it i think you guys would like it um but anyway yes how should one visit sardinia well i'd say um you need a car really which is is a sort of inevitability because there the transport internal transport is is not great um and if you really want to travel around which you probably should you know you don't want to stay in one area then i'd say you definitely need to rent a car which is relatively easy to do, but but essential because there's only one train in Sardinia. And as much as I love it, because it's sort of eccentric, sort of funny old train line, um, it's not very practical. <laughs> so yes, definitely definitely a car. I'd say try and 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 meet up with a a Sardinian family because the best food really will probably be made in a Sardinian home rather than found in restaurants, which I think is often the case with lots of places as well. I'd say um, visit places that are kind of off the map, try and go to little cantinas, uh, little agriturismos, um, stay away from the biggest kind of touristy areas um, and the, the most sort of famous beaches, especially high season. Um, I would say weather-wise, the nicest months to be here are probably May and June, the beginning of the summer, and September and October, the end of the summer, because high summer, kind of July, August, is, is really, really hot, um, and for me, not necessarily very enjoyably hot, so yeah, those months are the best, um, and I'd say just, yeah, be, be open-minded, ask questions, you know, like, I think Sardinians are incredibly proud of their culture and their cuisine. And that is a really wonderful thing because it means that they're also very passionate about it. So if you show interest and you ask questions and you show appreciation, then you will find incredible hosp hospitality and um, really amazing things. Yeah. That's, I don't know. I'm sounding like I'm thinking I'm going to put this on my list and that sounds very fun. I think I would enjoy yeah, it. I think you would. It's good. And it's it's got that sort of added appeal that it's a bit off the beaten track, which I think is, yeah, for people that are sort of seeking something a little different, that's definitely one of its its sort of things is that, you know, like everybody knows, everybody goes to Puglia, everybody goes to Florence, everybody goes to Rome or whatever. And then like if you're searching a little bit deeper into Italian culture, maybe you then finally go to, to Sicily, but then Sardinia is like way, way down the list. And I think that's the sort of good thing for the for the discerning traveler. Right. Yeah, I, I like going to places that are off the beaten path. I don't like going to typical tourist places because I, you know, I've worked near tourist places and you always see the flocks of tourists. They're always gathered together and they don't seem, they always seem kind of vaguely confused. They don't know why they're there. They're just like ticking off a, off a list and they're just all standing around looking around going, all right, we've done this now. Now we need to go to the next thing. And I'm like, wow, I, I don't get that. I'd rather just wander and kind of meet people and talk and kind of observe and look, Yeah. you know, I don't, I can't imagine just like going to the, to the kiosk where they have the thing where, oh, look, here's this and there's that. And then you're off to the next thing. I don't, I don't get that whole tourism thing. Yeah. The, the, the box sticking tourism, I think is dangerous. And I think when you start making lists, sort of really intensive lists that you have to keep to that can make the whole experience quite stressful and actually it's like so many things kind of spontaneity um is the best thing and the things the best things always happen when you're not you haven't planned them or you're not expecting them so i think try and keep a kind of open approach in that sense as well 
Now, your newest cookbook, La Vida e Dolce, Italian-inspired desserts, was written at the beginning of the pandemic. Now, how did that uh, influence the writing of the cookbook and, and how it kind of affected your life? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was it was written entirely on, you know, sotto COVID, as they say here, like under COVID, um, <laughs> which I think is a good expression because it makes it sound like this kind of horrible suffocating thing, which it is um, and has been. And I think... Um, I really, I mean, it was really important to me and actually, um, you know, obviously it's, it's hopefully evident in the title, but it was really, really important of me to get across, I think, the philosophy behind the food as well as just as the recipes themselves. And I think with every, everything I do and all the writing I do about food, it's not really just about the food. It's also about the way of life and a way of life. And I think one of the things that um, is sort of endlessly appealing about Italian food and more specifically the Italian philosophy to, to food, towards food is that is this sort of idea of pleasure and enjoyment and really making the most of, of mealtimes and eating. And I think a lot of us definitely in America, I know in, from my own experience in, in England have kind of lost that sensibility, that real kind of enjoyment of food and a lot of us eat, you know, a, a, a box sandwich at, the de at a desk and we rush things and we're constantly stressed and obsessed with our work hours. And I think um, that kind of focus on, on the slightly slower way of eating and living is a really positive thing. And one of the things that I put across in Bitter Honey was that idea of, of sort of enjoyment and relaxation and, and family and that kind of thing. And then in La Vita Dolce, one of the, the sort of big themes is, is this idea of, of kind of eating a proper breakfast and the sweet breakfast, which sort of sets off the day in a good way. And I think during the pandemic, that became a really kind of essential part of every day for me was waking up and having making myself a proper breakfast you know, which may have been like a slice of cake that I'd made the day before or an ice cream when it was really hot that I'd made the day before or something. And that just kind of that essential enjoyment because, you know, so, so many things are sort of, it, 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 I think food just is so, it's such a universal pleasure for everybody. You know, it's, it's yeah. something that everybody has access to, everybody can eat, everybody can cook. Um, you know, and I think that's why it's such a, a kind of magical thing, um, because even during a pandemic, you know, one of one of the basic pleasures that everybody can really enjoy is, is eating. Um, who are some of your inspirations as a cookbook writer? I mean, I know that you have said that you really love reading cookbooks throughout your life. Who are some of the cookbook authors that really thought, wow, I'd like to do this, you know? Oh, so many. I mean, <laughs> I probably read um, read more than I should. I get to that point where I like get crisis about my own writing because I'm so full of other people's work, in a way. Um, but I think, I mean, one of very, uh, very, very early influences was Nigella Lawson, who I think every, almost every cook in the world cites as as an influence. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> I think she has such a great kind of. Um, conception of, of pleasure and enjoyment and uh, you know really like um, making the most of food and I think she also 
gets that sort of emotional and philosophical aspect of it as well and, and her, her books are not just books of recipes they are you know kind of books that you could sit and read um you know in bed on the beach or whatever because she's fundamentally a brilliant writer as, as well as a good cook yeah. um so i think her books then mfk fisher has always been a big kind of inspiration and fan I, I don't what fan not a fan um I've been a fan of hers um she I love the way that she writes again like a, a great kind of concept like a great idea of, of pleasure and what it means to eat and, and I think um so she's always been a big influence and um I'm trying to think I mean I'm not sitting in front of my library right now so I have to and, yeah no pressure <laughs> <laughs> I want an exact list of. The <laughs> I think Marcella Marcella Hazan. I took Marcella Hazan's The Essentials of 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 Italian Cooking. I think it is that big Bible one of her sort of collected. Um, and she writes. I quoted her in Bitter Honey. Actually, she writes really brilliantly about Italian food. Obviously, is Italian, but moved to America, and I think maybe sort of that made her kind of uh, reassess and, and analyze her Italian heritage in a really in interesting way, because I think she was living and writing in America where food was very processed, overly processed. It was very difficult to get fresh ingredients. So, I mean, that that kind of disjunction when you do move countries, it obviously makes you analyze things in a much in a much more kind of perceptive way. So I think that's really interesting reading that. And um, I love who else is there? Rachel Roddy is another English writer that moved to Rome and writes very like lovely sort of stories and recipes about roman food and her experience with it um patience gray is one of my old favorites who lived in sort of rural greece and rural italy for a long time and wrote a very kind of cult cookbook about her experience so yeah just the top of my head all women which is rather sexist isn't it maybe i should choose some men <laughs> i think that's so that's okay i mean I, there's not I don't know. It's funny. I mean, there are, have been quite a few men, but like, I, I feel like it's not as many as women. I think I always feel like I see a lot um, more women authors than men, but I think that's changing. I see that's yeah. changing now. Yeah. What it's likewise, I want to ask you um, what artists have inspired you through your life? Um, so I, hmm. I used to, when I was younger, I was obsessed with um, Toulouse-Lautrec and... Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the kind of like beautiful pastel drawings um, and the sort of characters that he captures and the faces, it's, it's sort of incredibly evocative. Um, and I think then um, Sheila, I always mispronounce it, but um it's spelled it's spelled sort of Schiele, who i think is also kind of austrian artist who i used to love who does very kind of like visceral quite kind of kind almost unpleasant kind of human forms but i used to love him um and then sort of illustration wise i mean that was more when i was kind of painting back in the in the day but then illustration wise i have a few there's a cartoonist called sampe who's a French cartoonist who did a lot of work for the New Yorker and his like his little cartoons are absolutely brilliant they're so good and funny I mean it, they're the kind of cartoons where you would actually just look at a cartoon and laugh out loud even if there's no caption just the way that he captures things um is really brilliant and I love um 
I love Quentin Blake, he's a sort of classic English illustrator who did all the Roald Dahl books. I love Edward oh, yeah. Lear. Yeah. I love Edward Lear, who was a sort of Victorian illustrator who did lots of nonsense, which kind of inspired the nonsense thing that I love. <laughs> um, so yeah, lots of lots of different kind of people. Now I want to ask the last question. Um, you're surrounded by some really lovely food there in Sardinia, but is there any British food stuffs that you miss when you're there that you have a hard time getting? <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, this must be true of everybody that moves countries, right? I think I do. It's funny because it's, I mean, it's, it's not really a missing anymore because I've, I've made things so distinct. It's like, I'm so particular about what I, what I keep to Italy and what I keep to England. So like, I'd, I'd never drink tea in Italy, for example. I just, don't like it here it doesn't taste right I don't have the culture you know like I don't sit down and have a cup of tea at four I can't ever imagine doing that it's too hot it's just totally wrong so like I never drink tea here but like as soon as I go back to England the first thing I do is have a cup of tea and it just feels right in the place and the time and I love it but I couldn't exactly say that I miss it necessarily because I know every time I'm going to England that's the first thing I'm going to do so I definitely, I, there are things that I, you know, I love and I look forward to about when I go home. And I think gravy is one of them as well. But I love yeah. gravy um, and it doesn't exist in Italian culture. There, there is no kind of equivalent of gravy. And it's funny when I try and explain it to people and I'm listing all of these ingredients that go in it and they're all like, what? You put like, you put wine in it and then you put like sauce and then you put brodo and then you put this. And, Everybody thinks it's the most bizarre collection of ingredients, but and yeah, you you will, you'll never understand gravy until you try it, and then everybody's a convert. Um, so yeah, gravy, tea, butter because salted butter doesn't exist here, so I miss like really oh. salty. Yeah, I really miss salty butter. I miss um, God. What else do I miss? Like tea time things, so things that go with tea, so like biscuits, because English, the English are pretty good at biscuits. We have a lot of good biscuits, which have a lot of butter in them. Um, and Italian biscuits tend to be without butter, obviously. So I do miss buttery biscuits, buttery cakes, creamy, creamy things, because cream in Italy is not very good. So I miss things made with good English cream, clotted cream, because that's a West Country thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna say. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, that's, that's, I mean, clotted cream is one of the best things in the world and very difficult to find anywhere outside of the West Country. So that's a big thing as well. But yes, sorry. I've rambled on for hours. I'm sorry. No, I've, <laughs> I've, I've enjoyed talking to you so much. Letitia and Clark, I want to thank you for being here on the podcast. I've had a lovely time talking to you. Thank you for having me and thank you for some lovely questions as well. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was my conversation with Leticia and Clark. I really had a good time talking to her, and I really encourage you to read her books. Um, I think you'll really enjoy them quite a bit. Um, her newest book, of course, is Le Vite e Dolce, and um, it's out now on Amazon, uh, and it's a very beautiful book, as I've mentioned. Uh, very stunning to look at. Tune in next week. And we're going to be talking with Ashley Kamora, who runs Liquefied Juice Company. I had a wonderful conversation with her, and I think you really enjoy hearing about the informative talk we had concerning juices and juice uh, fasts and cleanses. So tune into that on Friday. 
Until then, happy cooking.